Please stand with me in honor of the word of God as I read from Matthew. Matthew 5, 1 and 2. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Matthew seven twenty-eight. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Keely. You may be seated. Well, in our Bible reading for this year, we have arrived at the New Testament. Hallelujah. (laughs) It's been kind of fun getting there, having uh, completed uh, the Old Testament. So we have the rest of the year to soak in the New Testament. We've started in Matthew. And so if you want to join us, all you got to do is just start reading the New Testament. So from here on out, just read the New Testament with us for the remainder of this year. Uh, Read Matthew. Uh, all this week, and you'll get right caught up with us. Our text today from Matthew 5, 1 through 2, uh, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and he sat down, his disciples came to him, he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and then the closing verse in Matthew seven twenty eight, where uh, they, seeing Jesus finished his teachings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So the teaching of Jesus compared to the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees of his day, we'll look at that today. We'll look at um, Jesus' teaching of the Sermon on the Mount and what that means to us. I titled this, A New Moses. So... How do we get there with a new Moses in this Sermon on the Mount? In Matthew 1, verse 1, Matthew opens with a setting, a narrative. And this is very important when you're looking at each chapter or each new setting in a scene, like of a book, when an author uses the setting. It's very important to see what that setting is because that's a part of the power of, Uh, that the gospel writer has in bringing the message. So he's creating a setting. So this first setting in the first book of Matthew is new, newness. You all love new things? Newness. And what is new here is Jesus. And and literally in the Greek, uh, biblos, genesos, Jesu, Christu, I'm sure I wrangled that in Greek, but it means a book of the beginning of Jesus Christ. So when it says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, when Matthew opens up this scene in this narrative, he's, uh, he's purposely creating images of Genesis. This word is rooted in this uh, in genealogy in Genesis. And it's, it's mentioned several times with the, the Genesis, the same phrase in the Septuagint in Genesis. And Matthew is gleaning on that. He's getting to show us that this is a new beginning. The story here in Matthew is starting over. There's something new that is dawning. 
And so he says this beginning, this new beginning in Jesus in the story, this setting, this Genesis, this new creation that's going to happen in Jesus is a completion and a fulfillment of all the Old Testament story. So he's going to list all the key figures. But in verse 1, he mentions two people specifically. He mentions that this beginning of Jesus Christ, that he is the son of David and the son of Abraham. So he's going back and showing that he will bring all the promises made to Abraham to bless all the nations. He's that, he's that one. He's one of the key words for Matthew is fulfill. It means to fill up. And that's what Matthew will be doing. He'll be referring to the old story and he'll be showing how Jesus fills up and completes the story. It's like they were all these characters were a little bit in the story, you know, a little droplets in the, in the cup, but Jesus is going to fill up the cup and overflow the cup. You see that image? The, the Bible uses words like shadowing, foreshadowing. These, these are foreshadowing images, and Jesus is the substance. Like they're shadows, and what do you mean, God? But Jesus is going to come on the scene and go, bam, like in-your-face reality, the truth of who God is. He's going to present him in just a physical human king on the earth like David bringing all the blessings of Abraham. Are you ready for this new story? Just with that opening, that setting, like this is who Jesus is, this new beginning. So when you leap into uh, Matthew 2, you get this quote of, of, of Matthew saying, he's quoting Hosea 11.1 1, and he says, uh, in Matthew 2, 14 through 15, he arose, took the child and the mother in the night, and they departed to Egypt. You have this fleeing to Egypt. And verse 15 says, they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill. This was to fill up what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. And this is Hosea 11, 1. Out of Egypt, I called my son. So you're going from this beginning Genesis story to the son of David, the son of Abraham, this blessing, giving, bringing king who's coming to dawn the kingdom of God and tell you what it is and that it is here and it has arrived in him, in this Jesus. But the beginning is turbulent. This baby is threatened to be killed by the current king. What is Matthew trying to say? What is in referring to Hosea? And when you go back into Hosea, what is Hosea saying when he says, out of Egypt I called my son? Well, Hosea is referring to the story in the Exodus. He's referring to when he called Israel out as a nation from Egypt. So he's calling his people out of slavery from Egypt. And he calls Israel his son. It's his people, his creation. He's elected these people, and he's calling them out of slavery. And this exodus was led by Moses. So Jesus is that. This is where we're headed to, this, this new Moses figure. He's this new Genesis, this new beginning, this new Moses figure. His life embodies the new exodus. Isn't this kind of amazing that... Matthew's portraying this and getting these images of, 
mostly Matthew writing to people who were steeped in uh, Jewish history, knowing this and seeing this. Out of Egypt I called my son. Hosea, what is that? That's the Exodus. Jesus is going to be like this new Moses who leads us in a new Exodus? Yes, that's what he's saying. But, you know, where, where else has that happened in the Bible where a child was threatened to be killed and all these babies killed? Well, in Exodus 1, Pharaoh, the new Pharaoh, he fears the, the Hebrews. They're growing and they're multiplying. So he, he, he predicts this, he sends forth these new orders, these, this edict, and he says, every baby boy that's born, I want him thrown into the Nile and be killed. But Moses is spared because his mother hid him in a basket in the river. And likewise, Jesus is spared from Herod's decree. Go and kill all these babies under the age of two, these little toddlers born in Bethlehem. Slaughter them all, every male there, child born. But his mother hides him in Egypt. You see these correlations of this story, and you get into it, and you dig into it, and you say, Matthew, Matthew, is this what you're saying. This is who this Jesus is. And you know Matthew is. He's talking about fulfillment and filling up. He's saying Jesus would be born of a virgin, fulfilling Isaiah 7. He's saying Jesus would be born in, in, in Bethlehem, fulfilling Micah 5, 1 and 2. He says Jesus will be sought at to be killed uh, by Herod, fulfilling Jeremiah 31.15. He was preceded, preceded by John, preparing his way, preparing the way of the Lord, fulfilling Isaiah 40, verse 3. He heals diseases, fulfilling Isaiah 53.4. He spoke through the parables, fulfilling Psalm 78.2. He comes to Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, donkey fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. Matthew is deliberate in his use of Old Testament terminologies. And when he says, out of Egypt I called my son, he's referring to this Exodus story, pointing you to this great deliverer who is Jesus the Christ, that Messiah will be this new Moses, leading his people all in one person. He will embody all of Israel. All of Israel will be, will be embodied in Jesus. And that's why when you get to Matthew 3, you have Jesus' baptism. What is, what is that? Jesus' baptism. Uh, here's Paul's comment to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10.2. What happened when the people of Israel were led out in the Exodus and they crossed the Red Sea? Paul says that, in 1 Corinthians 10.2, And all who were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So their baptism was crossing the Red Sea. And this is what Paul is saying here. And this is what when Jesus, after the Exodus, what is he? He's baptized. He goes before John and he is baptized. He says to fulfill all righteousness. He's identifying in baptism with his people. He's doing it to identify with his covenant people like Moses identified with his covenant people and leading him across the sea. So now he's in Matthew 3 and, and Jesus is being baptized and yet this son who has been brought out of Egypt, brought back 
out of Egypt is now being baptized and the cloud opens and God's voice speaks and says, this is my son. Okay? This is the new son. This is the son that Moses couldn't be. Moses was a servant in the house of God, Hebrew says, but Jesus is the son. So this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. He is satisfying what Israel could never satisfy as a people. Jesus is satisfying as a person. It's like Jesus is the ultimate Israelite. There's Israel and then there's the ultimate Israel. And embodied in Jesus, in God's Son, is all the promises made to Israel. He's here. He's the new Moses. He's leading them out. He's being baptized. You're not baptized into Moses crossing the Red Sea anymore. You're baptized as a Christian into Jesus Christ, into his death and resurrection. Amen? Woo. And so he's, he's, he's coming out of the water and he's saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This is the one who pleased me. He did what Israel could never do. He's filling up. He's, he's fully filling what could never happen in a sinful people. And my son, he's perfectly pleasing me. And, it's bad. and he hadn't done anything. He hasn't gone out in ministry. Jesus hasn't done anything. He's perfect son of God, perfectly pleasing the father. And he goes out into his public ministry. And where is he led from there? In in Matthew 4, he's led into the wilderness. That brings back some images, right? People of Israel wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, right? Jesus, he goes out and he faces the devil and all of his temptations in 40 days. And he whoops up on him because he denies every temptation Whereas Israel failed in all their temptations, Jesus faces all of those temptations and he overcomes them in the wilderness in 40 days. And then he goes out and he calls after his his exodus, after his baptism, after defeating the devil in the wilderness. This Moses figure now comes out and begins his teaching. So we arrive now at our text, right? With these images in mind of the Exodus, his baptism, the wilderness. What's he going to do now? So what is the setting of Matthew 5.1 that I read here? I just left you right at the end. Like he opened his mouth saying, I want to get to the teaching. But it's the narrative setting here. What's happening that, why is Matthew, why is these two verses important? Because it's creating the setting that he's going up on a mountain. This is the Sermon on the Mountain, the Mount. He's going up on a mount. What does it mean now? You guys following me? You seen these images of Moses who's, who's out of Egypt? I called my son. He's baptized. He's led into the wilderness. And now he's going up on a mountain. To what? What did Moses do going up onto the mountain? He received the commandments, right? Jesus is going up on the mountain to teach the commandments, to teach the filling up of what the commandments meant. And he's going to go after specifically the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. When you see those terms, you can think of religious leaders, religious people. Uh, he's, he's contrasting what his kingdom will look like, what being baptized in Jesus will look like, versus what being baptized in Moses looked like, what the people made it look like. They made it look like a failure. Not in its intent, but what it had actually become. What it had looked like. So he's going to compare this gospel, this is the gospel of Matthew, 
to what religion had become. And I'm going to use religion mostly in a, you know, a negative light. It's mostly used that way in the Bible. There are some times where it's not. But basically, it's your practice. What is your practices? You know, how are you attempting to please God and be saved to have this salvation? Who is your deliverer? Their Old Testament deliverer was Moses. This is the new Moses. And he's bringing forth a new Torah. He's opening his mouth. He's on a mountain now. They're ready to receive the commandments. And he's going to teach. And here's what he begins to say. Blessed, like happy. Here's where the blessing, the son of Abraham, that brings the blessing. Here's the king who has authority to bring kingly rule. Here's what he says my kingdom's going to be like. And here is what those who are my people will look like. Here's how I will bring the blessing of Abraham. Here who is blessed in my kingdom. Here are the blessed that are mine. Here's what they look like. You ready? They're poor. Poor in spirit. And theirs, they're the ones that get into the kingdom. Luke just says, blessed are the poor. Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit. You can take some different things, but either way, they're poor. And he goes through these blessings of people, these meek, these mourning, these different people that you're, you're just upside down kingdom. And he gets kind of to the end of it and he said, you know who are really blessed, who are really happy, who are really joyous? The persecuted. The ones who are hated because of me and my name and for my name's sake. The persecuted. The poor and the persecuted. (laughs) Who are you? And And yet, we see at the end of our text, he did all of this Sermon on the Mount with authority and taught with authority unlike they had ever heard before. He spoke as if he were God himself. He didn't speak like the scribes and the Pharisees. I mean, when Jesus, when all the disciples, you know, all the followers left him after feeding him, and he turned to his disciples and said, Are you 12 going to leave me too? Was this it? And Peter turns and says, No one else. You can follow no one else. You alone have the words of life. We have no one else to follow. We're not going anywhere else. Can't go anywhere else. You alone. He spoke with that kind of authority. Wow. He's sitting there, Sermon on the Mount. You know, like I said, how much of it was just going. But a lot of the people identified with that. I am the outcast. I am the poor. My life is hard. I really do need help. They're, they're getting this gut core message. But what are the religious leaders? They're, they're wealthy. They're elite. They're respected. What are they getting out of this? They're threatened. This is not good news. This is not gospel to them. This is not deliverance from them. This is not the new Moses. This is not the new lawgiver. Who does he think he is? They're blind to the arrival. They're blind to the Sermon on the Mount. But Jesus is saying, you have heard it said, this is Matthew 5, 27 through 28. So you hear him saying, you have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. He brings that one in. But I say to you, man, do you hear that? Authority? Man, he's saying, Moses, 
And the commandment says this. But I say to you this. Man, that's powerful. Who is this guy? Speaks not like the, teaches not like the scribes and the Pharisees. He's going after the filling up of what the commandment actually meant and stripping it of what the religious leaders had made it to be. This outward conformation to rules and regulations and he's saying, and he's going after their heart and he's saying, you've committed adultery when you lust. You've committed murder when you call your brother a fool. He's going after and all these things. You've heard it said, a commandment, the Ten Commandments given by Moses, but he's the new Moses and he's given the new teaching and the new law. And he's saying, it's a matter of the heart. And, and there's some people that are just like, whoo, yeah, I'm poor, I'm mournful, I'm needy. I want to be a peacemaker. I want in on this kingdom. And there's other people saying, I hate every word he's saying and who does he think he is? And that's still... Still, what's happening to this day? A polarization of who? You can't stay neutral when Jesus is teaching this way. And he teaches all that way. When we, we've just been reading up to chapter 12, and Teresa said this morning, she goes, man, Jesus is harsher than Paul. You know, because a lot of people blame Paul for being so harsh. But he's like, man, Jesus is like, he just lays it out there. It's cutting to the quick. It makes Paul, I want to get to Paul. He's a little, you know, he seems like he's got a little, you know, it's just like, because his words are, man, he's teaching. And, you know, whether you're agreeing with him or not, you're like, here's at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He spoke like no one else. He taught like no one else that they had ever heard. And he did not teach like the Pharisees and the scribes. He didn't just point to God. He was saying, I am God here to tell you who God is. And that's just really different. You know, who is this? Who, what category you can put him in? He might be a lunatic, might be a little off his rocker. Anybody else that says their Messiah is? But was Jesus really, or was he? C.S. Lewis, you know, his quote, liar, lunatic, or Lord. Which one is he? Is he up there just lying? Is he just crazy? Is he out of his mind a little bit? That's what the, you know, or you kind of, you know, he's a little off his rocker. Even his own family thought that. Brother and sisters, a little beside himself. Messiah complex. And I was just like, he's a, he's a direct liar. He's a false prophet, and we're going to kill him. And I was like, no, he really is who he says he is. And that's what Matthew's proven here. He is the new Moses. He does have the authority to bring the new teaching of what the kingdom is. And he defines it. Matthew 6, he's, he's looking at things. He's seeing religious, comparing kind of religious observers with gospel believers He's not saying, clear, clear into five and, and, and six, he's not saying that nobody's salt, right? He's saying, he's not saying somebody, people are salt, some people are pepper. He's saying there's some people that are salt and they have flavor and there's some people that are salt and they've lost their flavor. You know, see, he's not comparing like sinful, worldly people with, you know, godly people. He's, taking, he's going after religious people who say they're salt, but he's saying you've lost your flavor. What, he's not comparing light and darkness, right? He's not comparing you are light, other people are dark. He's, he's saying you're light, you're light, but where's your light? What are you doing with your light? Is your light hid on the stand shining, or is your light hidden under a basket and hid? Religious people hide their light. Christians shine their light. And Jesus is comparing religious people with gospel believers, and that's, 
been the passion of my heart for the last 10 years to get myself out of religion and everything I learned wrong and get right into the mercy of God, into the gospel of God, and to get a group of people that want to follow in the love of Jesus Christ and the purity of their devotion for Christ and get religion out of the way. Get the outward false you know, appearances out of the way and get gut core real saying, I want to follow this guy. He's my Lord. I'm ready to give up everything for him. It's, it's hard to do. It's hard to do everything. And our heart wants to follow religion. Everything in our heart wants to do the right thing and claim credit for it. And that's what religion wants to do. And it wants to be able to say, I've done it. They haven't. I'm better than them. They're not. All these comparisons are, are at the root of, of wrong pharisaical scribe teaching and Jesus is on the scene and he's saying I'm the new Moses with a new Torah with a new law and I'm going to tell you how it is in my kingdom the people around me my followers will live based and rooted in this teaching he opened his mouth saying and when he spoke he spoke like they had never heard anybody spoke before are you there hearing his words like nobody else has ever taught you Jesus's words they're, they're powerful. Who's praying? Well, both groups are praying. Uh, he, he's talking about praying in 6. Uh, it's not one's praying, you aren't praying. You need to pray more. Some people aren't praying. He's saying, oh, there's praying. Both are praying. But one's praying to be seen by others. And they think God hears them because of their many, you know, fancy words. But he says, you, you pray to me in secret, not to be seen for others. Come on, gospel believers, with an attitude that God already knows what you need before you even ask. You're not going to be heard because of your mighty great words. These are people praying. Someone asked me, you know, can you pray wrong? I was like, heck yes, you can pray wrong. You can pray wrong like the Pharisees and the scribes. And the parables that Jesus taught of the tax collector and the beating his breast and the Pharisee going, I'm glad I'm not like this guy. In his heart, he was saying, in his heart. He was there praying. When it says he prayed, it was saying, in his heart, this is what he was thinking. This was his real prayer. His real prayer was religion. His real prayer was, I'm better than this guy on his knees. I've done right, and I deserve you, God. Where another one says, all I need this is a gospel believer. All I need is what you've done for me, Jesus. All I need is your mercy. And this one is saying, I'm good. I've been good for you, and I deserve you, God. I feel sorry for this guy because I'm so much better than him. But he didn't say that out loud, and neither do we. We just say it kind of in our, uh, you know. And it's a battle, and Jesus knows it, and that's why he's coming after us with this teaching. And that's why it's hard. And that's why it's difficult. And right now we can look and go, yeah, man, those Pharisees, bad people. You know, or we can say, man, I fall into that trap all the time. My only hope is your mercy, God, on my life. My heart is constantly dark. It constantly desires to prove itself and earn by my performance so I can boast in myself and in my flesh, what I've accomplished, and I can look down on anybody else, it doesn't matter who it is or what level, but just that I'm up here and others are down there. 
And that's what they were doing, and that's what Jesus is going after. They're praying. They're fasting. What are they doing with fasting? Are both groups fasting? Yeah, both groups are fasting. But one's putting makeup and gaunt. And they want, you know, yeah, look at me. I'm fasting. Look at you know, you know. Because they want what all of us want, recognition, praise about how good we are, about how well we're keeping the law and the commandments, about how good rule keepers we are about how good we've been. We even have pedigree, man. It wasn't just me, but it was my father and my grandfather. And you know what they did? And you know what? And this is why I am who I am. And you know what Paul said in Philippians 3? I consider that all dung. That I may gain something else in Christ. I consider all the pedigree of who I am of the tribe of Benjamin. All the long lineage of thousands of years. I consider all the righteous laws that I kept that were blameless according to the law. I fulfilled every sacrifice when I did anything wrong. And I consider that all trash. A heaping pile of dung. Compared to knowing Jesus. That's what we're in a battle for. With religion luring our hearts down a road that does not glorify who Jesus is, does not glorify who his teachings are, and they will always be hard, and they will always go against what you want. They'll go against it. If your Lord has never confronted you with something you're doing wrong, you don't have a Lord. You have a personal secretary getting you a cup of coffee when you tell him to. And that's who Jesus is to people. Go and get me this, Jesus, I need this. Go and get me that, Jesus, I need that. They don't have a Lord who can confront them with their sin. But gospel believers have a Lord. And he confronts them. And he comes and says, you're my servant. I'm Lord. I'm king. And I'm the new Moses in town. And I'm on the mountain. And here's the law. And I'm laying it down. Follow me or get out of the way. And a lot of people are getting out of the way. A lot of people. And the grace of God is calling people even mightier to get on board with the gospel not religion. So all these people are doing these things. They're praying, they're fasting. Jesus is confronting religion. And he's comparing it to the gospel. Where's your treasure? Where's it laid up? You love money? You love it here? All your treasure laid up here? Or is it laid up up there? Who are you working for? What are you working for? What are you giving towards? What really means something in your life? When it comes down to it, and I look at your checkbook, where does your treasure really lie? Where is it? Pharisees love money, and they love the praises of men. That's what they loved. He's going after them. What about judging? Well, religious people always get in a big judgment war. They're always looking down on others. They're always superior to others. There's always this fighting. There's always this consuming of one another rather than loving one another. So our motto here at the end of every sermon is love one another. That's how men will know you're my disciples, not because you put yourself up and say how much better that you are than everybody else, but religious people, they see, yeah, they have some sins. They're a little speck in their eye. But look at the log in that guy's eye. Look at how big, you know, look at today. Like, yeah, I get you. I'm feeling you. Yeah. Oh, man, I know some people with some, yeah. They got a big religious log in their eye because your religious is just a little speck. But gospel believers, you know what they do? They get down and they go, I need your mercy. I got a gigantic log in my eye. My brother's got a, barely got a speck in his eye. But look at me, God. I am begging you. I'm on my knees. I'm beating my breast. Please forgive me. I'm a sinner unworthy of your grace. You don't owe me anything. You owe me nothing, God. I'm a sinner born in Adam. 
And yet your grace and mercy has saved me. And a religious person is going, I got a little speck, God. I know you're glad to have me. You know, I'm a sinner. You know, but look at the log over there. Look at those people. Look at them constantly. Look at them, God. Oh, look at them. Look at the log. Look at them how far they are. Look at, oh, God. Aren't you sick of them? Look at those tax collectors betraying us. Look at those prostitutes out on the street. Look at them. Man. I grew up with that. I grew up with that battle. I grew up with that religion. I grew up with my daughter going to prison and me walking in to prison and seeing all these families in there, you know, around their families. And I was sitting there and he's going, you're as bad as they are. I'm like, I'm a little bit better. You're worse off because you think you're better. I'm like, okay, that hurts. And then I went out to Fort Stanton for three years with prisoners, guys that climbed out of dumpsters and came walking in there. They'd been living on the street for 10 years and, and just feeding dumpster divers, living, sleeping in dumpsters to stay warm amidst the trash and the garbage and getting out. And God said, you know what? They got a better grasp of grace than you do, Bobby. <laughs> you, you know, you think that you're up here and you're teaching them. They're here to teach you. And you won't even start in ministry again until you get that, Bobby. And for three years, I went out there, and I sat with people after, and I sat with them. Some of them knew my daughter <laughs> in prison. Some of them were my friends that I grew up with in Roswell. They said, hey, remember Jesse Gimbo? Yeah, we strayed together. They said, great, he's dead. Heroin OD, Santa Fe, in jail. Remember Tommy? Remember Lane Aragon? Remember all your friends? Remember them all? You grew up with on the east side, down in Roswell, dead, 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 dead. What about you? My mom got me out of there. Really? Got you out of the east side? Yeah, you don't remember in the eighth grade? My mom took me over to west side, Roswell, and I went to Sierra. Middle school with the affluent kids. Changed my life. Maybe she got him out of Egypt. I don't know. She, she said that's what spared him. Jesus is confronting people. He's the new Moses on the scene. And he's saying, I'm offering you forgiveness. We see this in his healing and these stories that follow afterwards. They bring and make all this effort and faith to bring this paralytic man, ripping the roof off, lowering him, bringing him down. And Jesus' first words aren't, be healed, rise up, you paralytic man, get out, walk. His first words, just to shock the heck out of those Pharisees that are still lingering after the Sermon on the Mount, still hanging around, still looking for excuses. You know what he says? Think of a scribe or Pharisee saying this. They'd never say this because they're not Lord, first of all, and they shouldn't. But Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you. That's what he came to do. He came to wipe out your Goliath, your sin. And you know what? There were certain people that loved that message, and there were other people that hated it, that hated it. Who does he think he is? The religious. Again, he's constantly confronting what the gospel is with what religion is. And Jesus is here to forgive. He is here to do battle with the enemy for you, to defeat him, to overcome him for us, and to give us freely of his grace 
a free gift. I mean, that's a repeated word because grace, gift, grace is the same. Free, all gifts are free. They come with nothing owing. But just to put it double emphasis, free gift of grace. Grace, grace, grace. He offers you salvation. And people will either get down on their knees and get a hold of that, and they will stick to it to their last dying breath. I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It's all revealed to me through scripture alone, and scripture alone, and all of my life is for God's glory alone and not for mine. He didn't owe it to me. I didn't deserve it. We sang that this morning. I, di- I didn't deserve it. He didn't owe it to me, but he gave it to me, and I'm forever, forever, forever grateful to him. See, religious people, religious people, they work out of duty. They, they're like the landowners in the vineyard, another parable like, you know, hey, he said he promised us a denarii. You know, we've been working all day under the heat of the sun. We've been slaving. We've been, this is their attitude. We've been slaving for God all day long. So when he pays these last guys that came in and worked an hour and he gives them a denarius, you know what those people say that have been there? You know what the religious people say? You're going to let in all these people in like that? You're going to let all people in by grace alone? What do you think we've been doing? See, they haven't been saved by grace alone. They're there doing the work. They're there doing their duty for God. They're there sweating under the sun. They don't see their service for God with joy. I got to be in the kingdom all day long, and he gave me exactly what I promised the denarius. You see anybody rejoicing like that? No. They're bitter. They're bitter that these guys that came in, these guys that climbed out of a dumpster that had been feeding on trash to keep warm, and they got out and got grace, the religious person is going, he can't get what I get because I've been slaving for you God I've been working for you God I know I'm putting these emphasis in and you don't need them you know you got it you feel it you know and yet our hearts are bent towards the law bent towards keeping it to please God so our answer today in the sermon on the mount is that we are going to be gospel-begging people. A God, people called out for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to dig into it like we've been digging into it all year. But we're digging into it in just a kind of in-your-face Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John kind of way. You guys ready? For the next several Sundays, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which was preached all through the Old Testament, going to just keep preaching it it's a new genesis the new arrival the filling up of all the promises of god are yes and amen in jesus amen let's take communion together it's like jesus is going to live leave them with something to remember him by and going to remember who he is and the good news that he is this is not about you this is about what he has done for us see religion is all about what i do for god and how i can contrast that with you and how i'm doing it better or worse or you know whatever putting on a platform judging praying above and this fasting above and this all these things but this is about all of us needing jesus the same whether the last hour or someone Dying on their bed, cries out, you know, Jesus, I I didn't know you my whole life, you know, and I resisted you. And on their bed, they say that, that that person, that person gets all of it, all of it. 
He gets the full payment. As you who were born and raised by Christian parents, praise God for them. Praise God that you got to enjoy God from the time you were a child. Praise God that you got to know him all of your life. You didn't work. You didn't slave. You didn't give up. He gave you the blessing. He gave you the blessing your whole life. And if you see it that way, you see the the grace of God in the gospel. And that's what we want to see. We want to see you, Jesus. And you told us to do this when we gather together. You told us to do this whenever we gather together. You told us to do this to remember you. Remember your grace. Remember what you've done for us. So Jesus, we do that. We take this bread and we remember your body. Oh, yes. This is the new Genesis. This is the new Moses leading us in a new exodus. The new authoritative teaching directly from God. The perfect representation of God and all that he taught. This is Jesus who has come. This is who we remember. This is who we partake of today. Let us partake of this bread together and remember Jesus and his body. And in like manner, he took the cup. He said, this is the blood of the covenant. What is it? The old covenant? No, it's the new covenant. It's the blood of the new covenant. It's the covenant I make in my blood. It's the covenant that I finalize and fulfill for you in my blood. Because I'm the new deliverer, the son of God who gives his life for his people. Jesus, we drink of this and we remember Jesus. And that our sins are made done away with. They are no more. We are clean in you. Let's partake together. Father, we thank you for Jesus. I know I don't always yell when I preach, and uh, some people like it, some people hate it. Um, But please just let us hear your words. Not whether they were loud or quiet but just whether they were from you, God, not from me. And please help us to be able to receive you, Jesus, the word of God made flesh, dwelt among us. And we have beheld you and beheld your glory. Let us worship you as such as we sing this closing song in Jesus' name. Amen.